one for the recording. Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, before we start the uh, podcast, I want to do a huge, huge shout out over to uh, BHA, uh, better known as uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and kind of give you a, a brief rundown of their mission and what they're all about. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers seeks to ensure North America's outdoor heritage in hunting and fishing in a natural setting through education, work on behalf of the wild public lands and the waters. Uh, these guys are really fighting to push for public land. Uh, to really integrate people into the outdoor space and kind of take away that barrier and that stigma that you had to be born to do this or you had to be in a family that did this their whole lives. Um, they kind of break that stigma and they bring everybody in. And if you're in the Georgia area, you know, I can't recommend enough that you go and uh, join up, you know, with the Georgia chapter. Uh, I've never met a more welcoming group of people who don't need to use their ego to hide any flaws that they have. Uh, it's kind of all out there. Everybody's learning, and they're more than willing to help you come out there and, and learn from them and kind of see what they're about. So, you know, you'll also hear it in this podcast. You'll hear it, you know, throughout all my episodes. I'm always trying to push for BHA support. You know, hope you guys can join up. Hope you can come out there to one of the pint nights or one of the camping events and just uh, get a feel what, you know, what good company is. And, uh, and kind of learn, you know, about the conservation efforts that they're really pushing for no matter where you're at in the United States. So, uh, that being said, uh, huge, uh, thing that I'm about to do here, um, because I have so much respect and love for these guys and what they've done for, you know, the hunting community in itself. So for every purchase in my store, I'm saying this right now, uh, so I hope, you know, they hear it or whatever. But for every purchase that you guys make at my, you know, at my store online at www.beersbrosandbows.com, 10% of the proceeds will go to BHA. We'll gather all that money up. I'll get with them shortly and, and hopefully figure out how that's going to work out. But I want to make sure that I'm donating uh, some of the money that I get. Uh, I would like to go that towards them, which also in turn, that will go towards the conservation efforts. That'll go towards them trying to fight for more public land so hope you guys enjoy the episode this is to january i do the uh the early mornings it's nice to uh nice to get a sleep in uh there you go a couple days a week once the season ends oh yeah well hey man um so we're already recording kind of thing just got a little bit oh, i can edit that out or we can keep it rolling because i just keep it natural on here but uh before we uh, carry on, how about you uh, go ahead, introduce yourself to uh, the listeners, and uh, tell us what you're about, man. Okay, yeah, so my name's uh, Harry Lampus. I'm over here in uh, Massachusetts on the North Shore. Uh, do a lot of duck hunting, a lot of upland hunting. Uh, I've been running Springers since I was 12. I've always hunted with Springers. Uh the last maybe 10 or so years, once I hit college, I got really into uh, duck hunting. I had dabbled before that, did a lot of pheasant hunting. Uh, once I hit college, though, getting those long winter breaks, I uh, really started getting after the ducks on the weekends and, and during the breaks and got more and more into it. 
so now most of my season is consumed by duck hunting. Uh, deer hunting has fallen to the wayside. I <laughs> do do a lot of archery, but uh, you know now running dogs and chasing birds is typically a early morning venture. So the duck hunting has taken over. The deer hunting, I'll get mm-hmm. out in the afternoons, but uh, it's not my not my main passion anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a field expert for Drake. Uh, let's see what else. I'm a staff shooter for PSC Archery, and I'm on the uh, Mossy Oak Pro staff. So a lot of hunting, a lot of trade shows, uh, move around to all the Cabela's and Bass Pro and whatever shows we have here in New England uh, to sell product. I'm on the local board for uh, Ducks Unlimited for the state, the uh, social media chairman, and I'm the president of our local Ipswich River chapter. So I'm very involved with DU, mm-hmm. conservation and all that. Uh, in the summer, the off season, uh, do a lot of training with the dog. Uh, I'm involved in the Spaniel Club here in New England. So we do hunt test field trials and training days. Usually when it's not hunting season, I'm out training every weekend, getting the dog ready for uh, when September rolls around. And yeah, I think that's that's about it. Yeah, man, you say pretty busy, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what? Yeah, um... Of course. Yeah, spring turkey as well. <laughs> Big into turkey. If it has wings, I love chasing it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so why uh, why Springers? Well, so it all started back when I was a kid. My father used to run short hairs uh, as my brothers and I got older. He kind of, uh, you know, got out of it. Dogs passed away and he, uh, got out of the hunting. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to get into it here in Massachusetts. You can start hunting at 12. So, you know, as I got close to that age, I started getting more and more into it, really wanted to do it. And just so happened that my father had a friend from work that was really into Springers. So, he convinced my father that a springer was the way to go. Knew a breeder that had a litter available. And yeah, that, that was it. We went out, got a springer. Uh, as I started my hunting journey, we were training a, a new puppy. And yeah, that first season, I shot my, my first bird over a springer, and that was it. It's awesome. been springer since then. Yeah. And what, uh, what kind of makes them, you know, different from you choosing any other breeds, you know, later on in life kind of thing, you know, as you got more into your hunting career, you're obviously seeing a lot of different breeds, mainly labs. Like that seems to be the kind of the, the, the staple dog to use for, for waterfowl. Um, yeah. And you, you kept on with Springers. Why is that? Well, so the thing is, so I do a lot of upland bird hunting as well. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, a need for a dog. I can waterfowl hunt without a dog if I choose. Mm-hmm. I, I can get it done without the dog. But when it comes to upland hunting, you really need that dog. And there's nothing like 
hunting behind a springer. You know, pointers just don't do it for me. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to get a dog on point and have to go in and flush the bird. And, you know, if the bird's in cover, you got to go in and get it. Hunting behind a springer is just exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're just going nonstop, quartering across a field. You hit heavy cover. They just keep going. And it gives you a little, uh, a little bit more of a rush when you get that flush. Mm-hmm. Now you learn to read, you learn to read the dog. You can tell when the dog's birdie, but you don't always know when the bird's going to go up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it gives you a little, uh, gives you a little bit more of a rush, a little more excitement. They're just fun to watch. I mean, pointers, they do the job. If you're into that, uh, labs, labs will flush birds. They're not very exciting to watch, though. <laughs> and most, I, I know guys with labs. They'll admit it. I mean, they, they'll tell you. You know, it's not like watching a Springer. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. Uh, you get a lab that's good, and they get a little bit more animated. But a Springer just tears through a field like nothing else. It's it's just nothing like watching a spaniel in the field. The cockers are the same way. They're just a little smaller. But Springer on the upland side, unbeatable. And when it comes to waterfowl, unpopular amongst the lab guys, but a Springer <laughs> can do anything a lab can do. <laughs> if you want a dog, any situation you run into in the field, mm-hmm. a Springer can make the same retrieve that a lab can. Might be a little harder to train them to get there. A springer tends to uh, use its nose more and hunt on its own, mm-hmm. whereas labs are more. Uh, they, they take they take direction as opposed to going on their own. A springer, if you train it right, it'll take a line, it'll take hand signals, but it'll tend to hunt on its own a little more. Mm-hmm. Which, depending on the situation can be good and bad. I mean, if you get a springer and you can, you know, a bird dropped a hundred yards out and you can get it a hundred yards out. Mm-hmm. You don't know exactly where the bird is. The springer will start searching for it and it'll find it. Whereas a lab, I've seen labs where you really need to guide them onto that bird. Mm-hmm. And they're just, they're not hunting on their own at all. They're just taking hand signal after hand signal until you get them right on that bird. I've had my Springer do 150 yard retrieve out in the, uh, the marsh wow. just based off of, uh, just giving her a line and she just takes it out, cuts into the wind and she'll, uh, find the bird. Uh, yeah. It, that's the way I look at it. I mean, the only, the advantage to a lab would be, you know, the cold water, mm-hmm. cold weather. Springers can do it. You just need to give them a little bit more care. Uh, if you're in a boat, put a heater on the dog. A springer will stay out there just as long as a lab. Mm-hmm. That's that's the only place where the lab really gets the advantage. Right. But when I go out, I'll hunt her down to uh, 20 degrees or so. Jeez. I drag out a sled. I have a police military blanket. Wrap her up in the blanket. Put two vests on her. And she's good to go. 
you want to go the next step, you bring a towel. When she gets back from retrieve, you towel her off mm-hmm. and she's ready to go. And they'll springers. They still have a double coat. Uh, depending on the dog, I mean, they're pretty hardy. Yeah. They, they can handle some cold and, and they were developed in, you know, the UK. So it's wet, it's cold, it's rainy. They're bred for these conditions. Mm-hmm. And especially if the dog is moving, you never have to worry about the cold. They don't need a vest either. Mm-hmm. They'll just, they'll, they'll go forever. I mean, I've hunted her for upland, you know, 10 degrees out and she's in the water Jeez. still going. Yeah. And I've had her in the ice. I've had her on big water on the ocean. Uh, she doesn't care. She'll keep going. She'll bust ice. She'll swim around in the uh, ice flows. Mm-hmm. And she'll... She's retrieved anything I've sent her for. Geese, uh, ducks, pheasant. Uh, the first time I took her duck hunting, she actually went out for a retrieve on a goose and she was probably about a year and a half at this point. And I thought the bird was dead and she's swimming out there. And as she gets close to the bird, it picks its head up and it just starts flapping and trying to get away. And she Mm -hmm. just went, went right after it, got on its back, grabbed it, came back with it. No problems. And she'll, She'll take on anything. Anything a lab can do, they can do. That's awesome. And I kind of like how yours is kind of like a uh, kind of jack of all trades with it doing upland and waterfowl, you know, kind of doing a little bit of both. How, like, what was that training process like? I mean, was your first step of training just doing the the upland thing and then the duck? Or was it, were you training your waterfowl first and then, and then you had to gear towards that? Well, so the upland part really comes naturally mm-hmm. to the springers. So you start off, I worked on obedience, mm-hmm. got her to listen to the whistle, and really you need the dog to sit when you tell it to, and you need the dog to come. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So if you can do those two things, you can control the dog in the field. And a lot of people with springers or upland training in general, they'll work on quartering but with a good dog quartering comes naturally right they'll they'll learn if they quarter they'll pick up the wind better and they'll cover the field so i didn't need to do any quartering work with her Uh, mostly just you know she learned the whistle and if she's going out too far to one side you give her a whistle blast and she comes back so obedience first uh then you know, simple retrieving work, getting her to be steady. Uh, and then once you got through that, she got an upland season under her belt. So I didn't duck hunt her her first season because she really hadn't had that foundation yet. Mm-hmm. And with the upland hunting, once you do your gun intro and the dog has a basic understanding of obedience, Mm-hmm. Uh, then you just need to expose them to birds. So right. upland hunting, you do your obedience, you take them out. The more birds they interact with, the better they get. So 
once you got through that first season, then I really started doing the more complicated retrieving work. So getting her to take a line and take a cast over and all that. And then by the time we got to her second hunting season, she was pretty much ready to go. Then we started working on, you know, the more complicated uh, blind retrieves and all that, really trying to get the toughest part is getting the dog to trust you that when you tell them back, Mm-hmm. you know that there's a bird there. Right. right. Where we're hunting, for the most part, I hunt here on the uh, on the salt marshes. So there's a lot of ditches and a lot of big creeks mm-hmm. and really just separating the marsh all over. So it's important that you can get the dog to swim across the creek to get a bird that it hasn't seen go down. Mm-hmm. That's the toughest thing to train. That when you tell the dog back they can jump in the water swim across and start searching for a bird that they didn't see go down right but that's really the uh the tough part but that comes after you you know do all your basics with getting the dog steady getting the dog introduced to the field and all that mm-hmm. so i would i would say you start off with the upland start working the simple retrieving things and then you end up with a dog that We'll do everything you need. Right. Because essentially, I mean, it, when you really look at it, the concept's still the same. You shoot, bird goes down, they retrieve it, they come back. So the only difference yeah. is with your waterfowl is you're having her stay put instead of trying to go out there and flush the bird. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And uh, how... Yeah, and there is... Go ahead. Go, oh. um, so what was what's the like age that all this this process can start? Cause that's kind of like, you know, like me and you have talked offline before and, and we're, we're actually picking up our Springer this, this weekend. So I'm trying to, oh, nice. I'm trying to, um, make sure she gets, you know, the right kind of foundation of training, you know, prior, you know, to introducing her, you know, to gun work or retrieve work and stuff like that. What was like, what was your, like, did you wait, you know, six months before she started testing anything out? Yeah. So I would say when the dog comes home, you can start obedience mm-hmm. uh, pretty much right away. You don't want to do too much. You know, the older the dog gets, the longer of an attention span it has. So the more you can train. But, but when you get a puppy home at first, you know, you can do five, 10 minute sessions. And I'm guessing you're probably getting a puppy that's, I don't know, eight weeks old, 10 weeks old. Eight weeks. Yep. Eight weeks. Yeah. So at that point, you're mostly bonding with the dog, teaching the dog its name. And then, you know, you can start doing, you know, hup, which is uh, what you use for a springer. Hup means sit and stay. So if you're in the field, you use your whistle, you train the dog to hop on the whistle. When you give the whistle blast, you want the dog to basically stop wherever it is in the field. Uh, so you're going to start, training hop, training come and giving the dog a little incentive every time it does it. I would say once you get to, I don't know, maybe four months or so, Mm -hmm. you can start, you know, a little bit more, uh, 
I mean, bird introduction, somewhere between, you know, four, six, seven months, you mm-hmm. might start doing gun intro. But typically, you want to do the bird intro first. Uh, once once the dog likes birds, that's when you can do the uh, intro to gun. Okay. So, yeah, probably somewhere in that four to six month time frame, you might start introducing birds. Once the dog's comfortable with that, you start doing gun intro. And then it's pretty reasonable for a dog to hunt, you know, at nine months or so isn't too bad. Uh, Assuming that the dog is under control, what you don't want to do is, you know, get a dog on birds too young before you can control it. Mm -hmm. And then you just can't, can't keep it under control. It's crazy about birds. It doesn't have a proper foundation in obedience and it's just going. Okay. So like your, your steps, you know, obviously obedience, then you would transition to like, cause my question with that is like, you know, before you introduce the guns and the birds, I mean, you're, you got hold training and then you got, do you have bumper training at the same time? Would you practice those two things of them, you know, having a soft mouth and all that? Yeah. So you can do, you know, people like to do like socks in the hallway, you roll up a sock, you do it in a hallway. So the dog can't get past you. Mm-hmm. What it really depends on the, uh, depends on the dog. So when, when you start off with the training, you want to have the dog on a check cord. So if you're doing some basic retrieving drills with a bumper, Mm -hmm. you don't want the dog going and getting the bumper and playing keep away. Right. You want, you want the dog to know that it has to come back to you. So you just reel it right in. Okay. So as long as you have the check cord, you can start doing that bumper stuff once they stop teething. So, you know, maybe uh, three months old or so, maybe okay. four months old. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, varies from dog to dog, but you don't want them chewing on it if they're teething. Mm-hmm. And you don't want them playing keep away while they're puppies. And both of those, once they get through the teething, they won't be chewing on it most likely. And Springers naturally tend to have soft mouths. Okay. So as long as you don't, you know, don't play, keep away with a dog. Don't do, you know, tug of war. Don't do anything to encourage the dog to have a hard mouth. Mm-hmm. They, they typically won't. I see hard mouth more of a, as more of a, human caused thing in most cases mm. you've done something at some point that has caused the dog to start crunching birds or something right. uh, you've given the dog some sort of you know negative stimulus right that has made it think that that's okay mm-hmm so hard mouth is something that it can be fixed if it happens, but doesn't necessarily need to be worked on to uh, 
you know, prevent it. Right. I think naturally they don't want to be hard mouth. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's also something you'll notice as you're working with a puppy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they, sometimes they do just have a hard mouth right. and then you have to work on it, but you'll notice that as you're working with them. Okay. So as they're, as they're a puppy, um, you know, we can just give them like an antler, you know, let them chew on that and, and try not to play tug of war with them. And then introduce, you're saying like, we can go ahead and introduce a bumper like around four months. Like that seems like appropriate time to start doing something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say that's probably a pretty good, uh, pretty good timeline. Okay. Very as long cool. as you have them on a check cord, mm-hmm. they can't get away from you. That's, you just want the dog to, you know, have to come back to you. You don't want them chewing on it. And while they're teething, you know, they're going to want to chew. So you're tossing a bumper off for them and they might just want to, you know, right. take off with it and go lay down in the grass and chew on it. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Cause we're, we're trying to figure, make sure we got everything in place that we want, you know, her kennel training and stuff like that. Cause crate training is going to be pretty important to that. Obviously. Like I don't want her freaking out if she's going to be in the crate or if she's riding in the truck in the crate or stuff like that. Um, yeah. My, uh, my other question for you too is like, so was there a difference between getting a female and a male and have you ran male springers before? And then were you like, Oh, you know what? Like I really like, I rather have a female springer. Like they're easier to work with, you know, what's, uh, is there some, you know, anything with that? Well, so I haven't, I haven't owned a male. Uh, I've had females. It depends on who you ask about whether they're easy to work with or not. Mm-hmm. They do tend to mature a little quicker. Uh, I haven't had any bad experiences with a female Springer. They do mature quicker. So you will be able to, you know, start training them earlier and start hunting them earlier. It, the male springers, they just uh, probably lag behind, you know, a couple months maturity wise. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be, you know, working with a dog quicker, hunting with it quicker, a female is definitely the way to go. I think that's a, that's an undeniable fact. They do mature quicker. There's no arguing that mm-hmm. as far as whether they're easier to work with or not. I think if the dog is well-bred, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. Uh, I was out in Iowa uh, this past November and I did run a male Springer. Uh, my friend is a breeder. He came out from California. He brought a trailer full of dogs. Uh, my dog Tessa was, uh, nursing some, uh, raw paws. So I didn't want to run her too much on mm-hmm. the third day. So I did run a male and he worked fine for me. As long as they're bred well and trained well, mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. I will say my Springer, she's a, you know, American style field bred Springer. So she's leggy. She's tall, well-built. She's about 40 pounds mm-hmm. and she swims really well. Uh, she's fast. I am considering, you know, a larger male Springer mm-hmm. for my next dog. You know, male Springer Decent size one would probably be 50, 55 pounds. So I am curious about getting a male Springer a little bit bigger, especially seeing as I do so much duck hunting. Right. You know, I think they could probably 
handle a goose a little better, maybe uh, handle the cold a little better. I would say if you're leaning more towards the waterfowl side, definitely want to consider, you know, a a little bit bigger springer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't say for sure that a male does anything different than a female. I haven't seen it yet, but definitely, you know, a larger springer, whether it's male or female, definitely would help you out in the, uh, in the duck, uh, duck blind. Right. Uh, that, that's my consideration for my next spring. Just something a little, a little bigger. Give it a shot. I don't have anything against male mm-hmm. dogs. I just haven't had one. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad had one female, one male GSP. Uh, other than that, I haven't had too much exposure to a, to a male dog. It's just always been females for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just something I was. I've always been kind of curious on it, you know, to see if they're more affectionate or whatever it be. Because ours is still going to be essentially, you know, not just a hunting dog, but she's also a family dog. So we want to make sure yeah. that you know she's socialized and she's going to be sweet like that. Because I, I had a male, I had a male dog once, and uh, he's a pain in my ass. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was like hoping it's like oh, let's get a smaller one and a female. I think it, it'll be good, you know. And it was just really cool to pop up on your page because I was, you know, I was like, oh, I want to get a Springer because I want to like, I wonder if they can do both. And then I saw your page and I was like, holy shit. I was like, there's somebody that actually has one that does both things, you know, and she kick and she's like kicking ass out there. It's really cool. Yeah. So like, uh, to, you know, we talked a lot about the dog. I, I want to know a little bit more about you, Harry, and, and, you know, what your, you know, your, what's your hunting season looking like? You know, you and when you and Tessa go out there, I mean, you guys are traveling all over the United States, you know, and, or are you just staying in mass? You know, you said you went to Iowa. Is that like just a common trip for you to do is just only go to Iowa or are you going all over the place? So typically the way our season starts off here in mass September, we have early goose season. So we'll start off with that. That's a nice warm up for, uh, what's to come. Mm-hmm. I'm not really, I'm not a big hardcore goose hunter. Uh, I prefer to hunt, you know, regular season and do a mix of ducks and geese. Right. The ducks is what really does it for me. You know, getting mallards, uh, cupped up and responding to the calls and all that. And then we'll shoot geese, you know, if they're around, but we will start September early goose season. We'll do that. That's nice. You know, do a nice cast and blast, go out on the John boat, catch some bass, shoot some geese, uh, get them while they're still stupid. (laughs) Once that somewhere in there, we'll roll in a little bit of September archery deer season up in New Hampshire. The season up there opens in, uh, the middle of February, the middle of September around the 15th. So we might do, you know, a weekend of that here and there. And then October 1st, is New Hampshire grouse opener. So I've got a camp up in New Hampshire, a white, white mountain area, you know, kind of a, the Northern central portion of the white mountains, good grouse numbers up there, good woodcock numbers. So October 1st, we start with that. We'll go up there, start chasing grouse, you know, month of October, uh, early November is kind of, prime time for that as it starts getting colder the 
woodcock will migrate in. So I do a few weekends of that. Usually New Hampshire opener for waterfowl is around the second week of October. My buddy's got a camp up on the lake up there. So we'll go. That, that'll be our first duck hunt of the year usually mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. We'll do that. And usually the way that works is we'll go up there on a Friday night. We'll pheasant hunt on the way up on Friday. Uh, get up there, duck hunt Saturday, Sunday. When we get back on Monday, it's opening day for ducks in mass. So we'll hunt, hunt opening day here. Then... As we get through October, we're doing a mix of, uh, you know, grouse. We've got ducks. We've got pheasant in New Hampshire. Uh, pheasant in Mass will open up. Start doing that. Once that opens, uh, that's pretty convenient for me. I do, you know, live and work in Mass. So once their season opens, I can hunt, you know, two, three days a week for pheasant. And we'll usually, we'll usually do that. We'll usually get out, you know, at least one day a week. Definitely on a Saturday, we start doubling up. We'll do ducks first thing in the morning, and then we'll go out and chase pheasant right after. We'll throw in some afternoon archery deer hunts in there. And then once November comes around, we'll keep doing pheasant, keep doing ducks. And then we start thinking about uh, Iowa. So this was the first year I went out there. Uh, the breeder I got Tessa from, I've become good friends with, uh, he's friends with, you know, guys that I grew up, uh, looking up to as -hmm. hunting mentors. So their group has been going out to somewhere in the Midwest for 20 plus years. They did South Dakota, they did Kansas. Finally, they settled on Iowa and they've been doing Iowa every year since. So this was the first year I've gone probably going to make that a habit Hmm. that's usually the first uh that's the first week of november somewhere between there and thanksgiving depending on how the the crops are looking out there Uh, they've become friends with a farmer so depending on what the farmer's telling them he's seeing and when he's thinking of pulling in all his corn they'll base the trip off of that so this year ended up being right before Thanksgiving went out the week before and hunted, uh, second half of that week through the weekend and came back early Thanksgiving week. And that was, that was a blast. That was great. Had mm-hmm. Hunting wild birds and being out on the, uh, on the open prairie is totally different than what we're used to here in new England it's just so vast mm-hmm. and you know, over here there's no wild pheasant Right for wild birds. We hunt grouse pheasant are stocked. It's mostly for the dog. Uh, still fun to get out there, but they don't compare to the wild birds. Like you get out to Iowa and you're seeing, so many birds anywhere in the Midwest and you're hunting wild birds. There's tons of them. You know, you're, you're pushing a piece of public land. And as you get in towards the end, you're putting up 20, 30, 40, 50 birds at once. You're just watching birds (laughs) go up at the edge of the field. I mean, depending on, you know, 
time of the year, how they've been hunted. You know, they're skittish. You slam a truck door and you have birds flushing out of the field. <laughs> it's just, it's a completely different game. And they're faster. Uh, it is, it is a lot different, you know, over here. They're putting the birds out so you can shoot hens and roosters. You go out there, you're only shooting roosters, so you got to make sure, like, you see the bird right, and if the sun's not in a right position, in the right position, you know, it's tough to see the colors on them. Mm-hmm. Right? You'll yell "hen," and someone will tell you that oh, that was definitely a rooster as you watch it fly away. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's something special out there. Yeah, that's awesome. I think every bird hunter should go out and try chasing wild birds. It's something that if you're a pheasant hunter, if you're an upland hunter. You need to experience it at least once. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, you, so once, yeah, what was that? Well, I was going to say, have you been out to uh, to uh, Dakotas? I heard that's like the, it's supposed to be like the the mecca of going out there and doing upland hunting. No, I haven't done the uh, Dakotas yet. That's something that's definitely on my list. You know, South Dakota, uh, really good pheasant hunting. North Dakota, kind of the whole the whole pack you go to north dakota you're doing you know waterfowl and upland and when it comes to upland you know north dakota they've got everything they've got huns they've got pheasant uh you're getting i think they have prairie chickens out there you got all sorts of upland birds out in the dakotas and the waterfowl hunting is supposed to be phenomenal like you want to you get swans out there. You get all your waterfowl species. You know, it's prairie pothole region. Uh, that's like the duck hunting mecca. <laughs> that, that's where you want to go for ducks. Hell yeah. Yeah. Very cool, man. And uh, what do you do for work that allows you to to get out and, and freaking hunt almost all, all, all year, basically? So I'm actually uh, an engineer. So, yeah, I went to engineering school, got an engineering degree. Uh, now I'm working for uh, General Electric, and I work with uh, the military on uh, aircraft engines. And we get unlimited PTO. So, <laughs> you know, we, we can take off as much time as we want. I've got a work phone, so I've definitely taken calls, you know, in the field, in my truck, I've definitely gone out scouting for birds with my laptop on the passenger seat, running off a hot spot while I'm, uh, you know, listening to a meeting and glassing the marsh to see where the birds are going. <laughs> yeah, we have unlimited PTO, good flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, a lot of that obviously comes down to you know who you're working for. Right. If you've got a cool boss, you know, they, my boss tells me all the time, you know take vacation you haven't taken enough vacation yet stop coming to work take a day off take a week off make sure you're taking your time off there you go. so makes it really easy to you know duck out for the morning and i'll be honest with all the uh covid and all that mm-hmm. the last last year was probably one of my best hunting seasons i mean we were basically working completely remote Mm-hmm. And as long as you're doing what you got to do, calling into your meetings, 
and do whatever you want. Oh, yeah. And, and working from home, closer to the field, it's easy to, you know, get out in the morning, come back by 9, 10 o'clock, log onto your computer, you know, call it a day at 2 o'clock and go out uh, for a couple hours. So, yeah, I think between, you know, good manager, all that unlimited PTO and just the current kind of remote, remote work and being okay situation. It's just, just lines up perfectly. If you're a hunter, couldn't be better. <laughs> oh yeah. I heard that man. So, um, my other thing I wanted to ask you too is, uh, uh, being out in mass, it's like the last, I don't, to me, I mean, I'm very ignorant, I guess. I just didn't, I didn't know that it's like, it's like hunting really huge up in Massachusetts. Cause I've only been, I mean, me and my wife went to like Salem and stuff like that. And just didn't seem to me, it didn't seem like it was the whole place was like a, a, a big hunting kind of state. You know, you'd be surprised. So the big thing in Massachusetts, especially here along the coast, you know, people come from all over for our sea duck hunting. Mm. That That's the big thing. You know, we get, a lot of birds, particularly eiders, are the uh, trophy bird that people come here to to hunt. And, and they come from all over the world here to Massachusetts to hunt eiders. That's cool. Because we get all these birds that migrate down from, you know, Nova Scotia, Canada, down the coast of Maine. They all end up here basically, you know, around Boston and down into the Cape. They don't get much further down than where we are. I think you get some in Connecticut. I don't know that they go down too much further than that. The bulk of the wintering sea ducks end up right here. And that's what people come here for. But aside from that, you know, sea ducks, they're not exactly what you want to shoot if you're uh, looking for a tasty bird. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. And, you know, a lot of people will make them into sausage, make them into a jerky. But if you do that, you can eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, those are, there's a lot of people here in mass that do target them and are really into them and they'll go out and shoot them, you know, every week and they'll do, you know, sausage and jerky. But if you want to do regular duck hunting, there is quite a bit of uh, duck hunting here. Black ducks, uh, our main bird here. Mm-hmm. You know, if you hunt the coastal marshes, if you want to shoot a black duck, this is the place to come. Uh, black ducks, you know, mostly here, mid Atlantic, North Atlantic, that's where they are. There's a big wintering population here. So we shoot a lot of black ducks, uh, wood ducks, teal, obviously earlier in the season. And depending on where you are, you can get into a good amount of mallards as well. It's not the Mississippi Flyway. It's not North Dakota, mm. but there are birds around. You put in your time. You can do well on the birds. Here in Eastern Mass, where I am, we have tons of deer. Uh, there is a good deer population. There's a lot of deer living in suburban areas, mm-hmm. and you've got you know little postage stamps that are just big enough for you to hunt. And we do have some really big deer. You know, the last, 
I don't know, five or so years, five to 10 years, we've been seeing a lot of, you know, 140, 150, 160 inch deer. You start getting deer, you know, getting up towards 200. There are, there are some really serious diehard bow hunters around here. Mm-hmm. And there, there are tons of deer to be had. Pheasant, you know, it's all stocked. Uh, there's pretty good opportunity, though. Massachusetts is probably one of the better states in terms of bird numbers and, you know, public areas to hunt. They put out about 45,000 birds every year. Wow. And where I am, I mean, there's... I would, let's see, there's probably three to four management areas over here that they stock pheasant on and they're all one to 2000 acres. Mm -hmm. So you've got, you've got plenty of space to hunt, you know, they, depending on when you go, they can get crowded, but the birds are out there. If you put in, put in your time, you have a good dog, you'll find them. Right. And yeah. then, yeah, that was kind of my question was, you know, how much public land access do you guys have over there in Massachusetts? And it's kind of interesting to know because I didn't know. I didn't know you guys had, you know, four to five um, out there. How big are they? Do you, do you happen to know offhand, like, how, how big they are? Yeah, so the uh, two of the areas that I typically hunt for pheasant are, you know, 2,000 acres a piece or so. Mm-hmm. And one of them is in the salt marsh. So the part that the state owns is 2000 acres, but you know, it's surrounded by thousands more acres of uh, salt marsh. What they've done a really good job here in Massachusetts is preserving the coastal areas here on the North shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have what is called the, uh, the great marsh and it stretches from, you know, a little bit further north of Boston, all the way up into New Hampshire. And it's, I think it's about 10,000 acres, maybe a little more. And it's mostly undeveloped coastline. You've got, you know, some development and some roads going through it here and there. But for the most part, it's just a massive expanse of, of marsh and, you know, some little upland islands and stuff like that. But Wildlife management areas, aside from that, I have 15 minutes from my house. There's a 2,000 acre area, and that's just the side you can hunt. Uh, huge stretch of woods there. I think total, it's probably about 3,000 acres. And there's another two management areas just here within half an hour of me that are one to 2,000 acres. Wow. So, and there's also tons of as you get further north from Boston, there's tons of smaller plots of land, you know, four or 500 acres that are undeveloped. And, you know, some of them are open for hunting. Some of them aren't, but there, there's tons of land. It's not all Boston and around Boston is really packed and mm-hmm. really congested. But as you start getting north of Boston, starts opening up, you get more woodlots and more marsh. And as you get west of Boston towards Western Mass, there's farmland, there's tons of open woods. You know, if you go, if you go an hour west of Boston, 
you think you're in a different state. It, yeah. It's a lot different. Yeah, like I said, we only went to uh, we went to we did Salem. Uh, we obviously did Mass when we went there because uh, yeah. we, we went during Halloween. We went to go see the Halloween town and or the Hocus Pocus yeah. house and all that stuff. So and it was yeah. that was packed. Like it was it was crammed. But on our drive to 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 uh, Salem was actually really nice. I mean, you guys have some really pretty wood lines, uh, and the colors mm-hmm. were crazy. So it was pretty cool. I really enjoyed my time over there, and, and that's actually pretty awesome, man, to, to actually hear that that uh you know you guys have that that public access and stuff like that. It always interests me to see what other states have going on, and yeah. uh, what you guys are doing. So, um, you know, next question on this one is is uh, you know, what's your off season look like? What do you guys what are you doing off season with tests? You know, and then obviously what you what you're doing to prepare for the next season. Yeah. So off season. Once uh, once the season starts winding down, uh, me personally, I'll start shooting archery more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunday mornings, you know, I go to the range. They do breakfast. You know, five bucks, you get as much food as you want. So I'll have a have a breakfast and I'll go shoot three D. And that that is where I, you know, kind of started out. Mm-hmm. Way back when I was a kid, doing a lot of archery, so I'll get get more into shooting as the season winds down. Do that through the off season. Every week I'll shoot skeet. I usually do that during hunting season as well. If I'm not actually hunting on that day, so I will shoot skeet every week, you know, archery every week, and then you know, on the weekends run Tessa. So we'll do all sorts of drills. We'll go out. There's a little agricultural area we've got over here. And usually they'll leave, you know, half the fields as, as hay. And we'll work in those fields. We'll do, you know, you got ladder drills where you're putting out bumpers at uh, different distances and sending the dog out. So they go a little further back each time, you know, uh, bucket pile drills where you put a pile of bumpers out uh, depending on what level the dog is, you might use a bucket. So when I started off doing it, I would put a five gallon bucket out, pile the bumpers up at the bucket. And that kind of just gives the dog a visual. Mm-hmm. So they'll see, they'll see that bucket and they'll just, you know, you'll give them a back command and that's just training them to take a line straight back. They'll run to that bucket, grab a bumper, come back. We'll do that a lot. Uh, the other thing really now At this point for Tessa, line drills, bucket drills, those are really just, you know, kind of keeping her, keeping her fresh. She's got those down. So now we work on blind retrieves a lot, Mm -hmm. just getting her to trust me that when I tell her back, there's going to be a bird there and stepping out the distance further and further. So I'll get her out to, you know, maybe a 200 yard retrieve or so pretty, uh, consistently yeah it's awesome this year my focus in the off season this year is going to be working those blind retrieves with some sort of obstacle mm-hmm. so you know a, a ditch or or something you know across a creek getting her to cross through that obstacle and keep going on the other side until i tell her 
you know, to start searching. Really, the big one's going to be, you know, getting across that water. Right. She's done it in the field, but you can always get better. Yeah. No, that's that's pretty cool, man. And you you said you go to uh, you do like trials with her and everything else. Yep. Yeah. So we'll do we'll do hunt tests. So there's so AKC. If you look at an AKC spaniel hunt test, mm-hmm. you'll see like what the standard is for a finished dog. Okay. And it'll yeah. So it'll outline. You know, a hunt test will have a water portion and a field portion and it'll tell you, you know, they have the basic one, which is a junior hunter. The dog has to flush. I think it's two birds and, you know, retreat, make one retrieve. Mm-hmm. So pretty simple on the upland portion of the dog just has to come back to you at some point. And then you go to the water and the dog has to make a basic water retrieve. Doesn't have to be steady or anything like that. When you get to senior hunter, you know, the dog has to be steady at the line on water and, you know, retrieve right to hand. No dropping the bird. No, you know, stepping towards the dog to get the bird. That that dog has to come right to you, drop the bird in your hand. On the upland portion, the dog needs to be steady so when the bird flushes dog has to sit and then retrieve on command uh that would be for a finished master dog for senior they just have to you know flush be under control bring it back if you if you complete the akc training your springer spaniel will be steady to flush and shot and it will be steady on the line at water and it'll be able to complete a blind retrieve on land and water. So that's always the ultimate goal. That's what you're working towards when you're going through the, the hunt test. Okay. And is there like a, is there like a, does AKC give you like a training book for any of that stuff or you got to like outsource your own training and then kind of just go from there? So they don't give you any sort of, they give you the standard okay, and then you have to figure out how to get to that standard. And I would say for a master level dog, the hardest thing is probably getting the dog steady to uh, wing and shot. That's probably the, the toughest part. I mean, Tessa is not steady to wing and shot. That's something that I haven't really worked on. I she'll do, you know, blind retrieves on land, blind retrieves on water as a hunter. Those are important to me. Being steady to wing and shot, I feel like that's more of a you know situational thing. I think in a lot of situations, if you hit a bird and you know it goes down crippled or it sails for a little ways, you want the dog to stay on it to a degree. Mm-hmm. And if the dog is steady, it might be harder for the dog to find that bird. You know, if you hit it and the dog is sitting there waiting for you to give it a command to go and the bird goes another hundred yards before it drops, dog's going to have a hard time finding it. Right. I, I think, you know, it's a pretty highly contested subject there, you know, steady the flush and shot. 
some people say it's not particularly helpful in the field. Other people say, you know, if you don't train your dog to be steady, then what's the point? But most of those people tend to be field trial guys in a field trial, a dog, no matter what its age is, it has to be steady. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, kind of opinions vary there. My opinion, as long as your dog's under control, you don't need them to be steady, but yeah. Very cool, man. So, uh, before we, uh, we get done here, Harry, um, my, uh, my last question for you is, uh, are there any, like, uh, any lessons learned from, you know, your past experience with the dogs that you've kind of improved now with Tessa, you know, any like, you know, rookie mistakes that you made that you've, that you've polished out now? Yeah, I would say, you know, socialization for sure. You know, it, it's more important than you think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, really focusing on that as a puppy. I would say I didn't focus on that as much as I should have. Uh, so, you know, kind of had to do a little extra work there. And then... I would say really hammering in that focus on obedience before taking the dog into the field. Mm -hmm. And the last takeaway I would say is introduction to birds. You know, introduction to birds can be a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, just depending on where you are, depending on what you have access to, you know, getting birds can be a pain. Uh, but it's definitely worth it. You know, I kind of, you know, did a little intro to birds, but once I did intro to gun, I kind of just, you know, took Tessa out and let her figure it out. Mm -hmm. And it worked, worked out in the end, you know, by the end of her, uh, her first season, you know, she was, uh, she was great. I did take her on a couple of preserve hunts at the tail end of the season, but it did take her, take her a little while to kind of figure it all out. You know, first few birds, uh, took a little work, but I would say if I went back, I would, you know, get out there and find some pen raised birds mm-hmm. and just really, you know, get her used to birds before going out on opening day just to get her, you know, more used to it. I would say, you know, that's very important. Yeah. Okay. Intro to birds, get birds if you can. And yeah, work on that before the season starts. Awesome. So sorry. I know this is one last question, but so intro to birds, are you, are you like using a wing and you know, like, letting her sniff it or you got like a frozen duck and you're kind of just throwing it out there or a frozen bird and you're just throwing it out in the yard and having her retrieve that. Or how, how does that process work? So depending on who you talk to, you know, wings tend to be more of a, you know, you've got the, when people think of introducing a puppy to a wing, mm-hmm. they do like the wing on a fishing pole. Yeah. That's what I've seen before. So 
that's more of a pointer thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you do it with a pointed puppy and they, you know, they'll, they'll point it right. when they're little, they're pointed by instinct. When it comes to a flushing dog, you know, wings have their use on a bumper. You know, you start off with that, tape a couple wings to a bumper. Mm. So they get used to the feathers and all that. But when we're talking intro to birds, we mean, you know, live birds. Like you're getting the dog to flush these birds. <coughs> you might do, a, you know, a wing clip bird. So it can't really get full flight mm-hmm. and the dog will chase it. Intro to birds, you're building up that prey drive. Okay. Or, you know, make it, making sure it's there. So you're using live birds, whether it's, uh, you know, pigeons and you're recalling them or, you know, clip wing birds and the dog's actually catching them. You just want live birds, the dogs, you know, getting after them, chasing them, grabbing them, really getting excited about them. So once the, the whole idea is once the dog is excited about the birds mm-hmm. and it knows it's supposed to go after them, then you're ready to do your intro to gunfire. And you do that in that kind of situation. You've got a wing clip bird and, you know, you've got your buddy 150 yards away and he's, you know, when the dog makes contact with the bird, he's shooting the gun. The dog doesn't react. You move closer until eventually you're working up to the point where the dog is putting up a bird and you're shooting it Mm -hmm. and you're piecing the whole thing together. But that's what we mean by intro to, Intro to bird. It's a live bird. Getting the dog really, you know, really excited about it, and yeah, working your way up to that intro to gunfire. Very cool, man. Well, hey Harry, we're uh, we're now hitting an hour, man. I know you got Jim, you got to get to, and and man, I have so many questions for you, and I hope we can get back on again one day, and and at some point, and and kind of just keep diving in, into this because you you obviously have a lot of knowledge on on training the dog, and and I have a ton of questions so i'll probably end up hitting you up offline a lot you know to ask you things of what i should do with with uh with our dog so just really yeah, cool sure. man and i and i really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on the podcast man i know you're busy and you got you know you're con- we try to get this to to come together for a while now but you know you're you're extremely busy hunting man and and, and i'm jealous of you i think that's awesome that you're <laughs> able to get out there as much so but yeah thanks again man it, it was awesome and um uh, before you go, uh, where can people find you at? And, uh, you know, to ask you any questions or, you know, kind of just look at your media and what you got going on. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. Uh, my tag is coastal gunner. So if you look up coastal gunner, you'll find me there and, uh, yeah, see tons of duck hunting picks and yeah, lots of springer action on there. Awesome, dude. Well, all right, man. I really appreciate it, Harry. Thank you. Thanks. Take it easy. You too, brother. All right. Bye.